Hogan's deserves to talk about games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, TTRPG playstyles. Before you do that, Buddy, why don't you focus on what it is we do on this podcast? On this podcast, we like to talk about games. And uh, it's been a long time since we've done one of these. It's honestly been like three years, I feel like, since we did a reaction to an angry GM article. Okay, yeah, I would say like that That specifically, yes. I would say we, I think we did, a, we did some tabletop stuff in the past year, but like it's been a little bit less... Uh, but yeah, so the uh, the kind of frame here is the angry GM uh, has put up an article called uh, what is what is the exact title so that I don't screw this up. It's like GNS uh, P, I believe. Uh, like GNS, mm-hmm. what's like an ellipsis and then P. Uh, yeah, GNS ellipsis P, which is about uh, it's a lot of stuff, but it's it, it is fundamentally about the different kind of play styles. Uh, which is like GNS is like this classic one, which is gamist, narrativist, simulationist. Um, and Angry GM pro- proposes a new, newer fourth type of player uh, where P is like per- perform. Uh, it's, it's, it's performance or performing performer, maybe. Uh, yeah, I guess it wouldn't be performist, even though that's what I would want to call it. In fact, that's what I probably put in the announcement just because it makes sense. Uh, but yeah, it would be performer, right? Yeah. Uh, or maybe perf- maybe it would be performist. Uh. Uh, so he doesn't actually call them performance. He says like some players say D and D is a game. Some people say it's narrative. Some people say it's simulation. Some people see it as a performance. Um, he doesn't use the kind of like uh, what's it the uh, the 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 kind of like uh, what what's what's the word for that the like the now very like the er form right like uh or like the um the word the word for the demonym i think is the word okay um i don't remember i'm never gonna remember this shit <laughs> anyway um but basically so the 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 this um our, our classic scale of kind of like captain crunch to theater kid is kind of like has pieces of this in it too, but it's like the game, the the gamer and the simulationists are concerned about like the mechanical fidelity of the world. The gamer is concerned about it as a game. It's like an actual like game, um, in terms of like you know winning and like getting good number number go up. Simulationist is more into like simulating the world and dealing with the world as it comes, um, and exploring that world. Narrativist is about um, the story that you're following, and this new type perform um, performance is or performer i guess is they see their character as like a a bit to be played and like you win by like being true to form rather than being uh rather than kind of like any of the the other styles and just to be clear none of these styles are like exclusive they just kind of like every person's kind of like a combination you know degrees of any of them yeah, this is definitely more of a slider, not a toggle, though yeah. I don't know how you would have a slider between four nodes or a toggle. I guess you could toggle between four nodes, but a slider between four nodes would be crazy. Um, you well, know, I don't know. It's like it's, uh, it's one of those one of those like heat graphs that has like, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that's exactly how I think about it. Right. The, to me, these map pretty. It's funny because he talks about a certain uh, the article just explains what he's talking about but he alludes to the fact that performative players are shit <laughs> he hates them yeah <laughs> which i think is like i don't i feel like that's incorrect right like this is the kind of thing where it's a neutral term describing a thing and the thing can't be good or bad 
Do you know what I mean? In sort of the same way that, like, it's not like a Vorthos or a Spike or a Jimmy or a Timmy in Magic, right? To be other sort of mappable player player archetypes that are like this, right? None of those are right or good or correct. A Vorthos showing up at a PTQ is probably incorrect because he's playing the wrong type of Magic for that setting. But at the end of the day, the game is, you know, like... The game system is so wide and varied that when you're playing your Vorthos commander deck against a bunch of other, you know, like noobs or whatever, I'm sure the Vorthos is having a better time than a spike who just like completely tanks the whole, you know, like the whole table, right? That kind of a thing. Yeah, no, and and uh, I think to to his credit, he does say in the article that he thinks that mostly they're not his type of jam, and he thinks that there's issues with them. But I think the thing to recognize here is that it's relatively new, and it's probably like. In so I'm I am I I am a pa patron on Patreon of the Angry GM and he does like um he sometimes does Q and A sessions after he posts them and the Q and A session like basically somebody's like so Critical Role and he was like not exactly that but like it's the people who watch Critical Role and like don't listen to Matt Mercer's actual advice because he thinks Matt Mercer actually gives good advice but it doesn't his advice isn't exactly refer to the way that they play on Critical Role because Critical Role is a show right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, things things happen to serve the show that don't necessarily make for the best game. And so people are trying to, like, I, but, like, that's kind of, like, the the space we are in, right? Like, games as a show inform this kind of playstyle, I think, is the best way to put it. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he sort of does this thing where he charts the sort of evolution of D&D &D from you know, kind of war, you know, like, cause the, the, the very first iteration of D and D is like war gaming, but you control a single guy, right? You're not controlling like squads or units. Right. Um, and that was a very like simulationist sort of way to play the game and kind of game is narrativist frames only come after, you know, like the, the, the game kind of morphs over time. Right. Um, and that this is just kind of the newest evolution in that path, which I think it's actually probably pretty correct. I think that he is correct. This is a new, I don't want to say it's too new because there's a lot of stuff in, in what makes performative players performative. Right. Um, but yeah, the, he, they, they, the, this sort of player archetype definitely feels like it has popped up recently as opposed to being around for you know i don't know the last like 20 years right yeah it, it is the, the thing that i think is new is that like performer as like a dominant play style rather than being like an aspect of one of the other three yeah uh, i think a lot of narrative players were performative are like also performative players but i think also narrative players have kind of diverged a little bit because um honestly frankly i just think people are like capable of more complex storytelling in D, &D kind of now than they were in previous iterations just based on like practice right when you and i run a DD &D game or play a DD &D game we are better players than we were when we were you know 20 right right and that allows us to kind of sink into um i guess i would call it sort of like the narrative headspace and mindset in a better way right um and you know i i think there are also more tables where narrative and uh, where narrative is is of more importance now right like mm -hmm. um you know this is you know there's this whole other discussion here about like you know the broadening of the hobby right um and you think that broadening broadened a lot more people on the theater kid end of the spectrum, on end of the spectrum, in a in a thing that was more uh, more captured by by Captain Crunches essentially. 
Um, yeah, I think I would. I think I would definitely agree with that. It's funny because, like, you know, um, I think there are some performing instincts that are pretty good. Um, but actually, you know what? Maybe it's it's better to do it this way. He describes two pieces, like two component pieces of this play style that kind of coagulate into the performative play style. The first one is play button, push button, um, push button gameplay. And um, what was the other one? Push button gate and create and portray characters. Both of which, uh, th this is the thing. I think he's kind of correct about performative stuff, but I also think he's kind of incorrect about these two, like, pieces of the of the puzzle. Um, how do you, how do you feel about that stuff? So I think I think push button play in particular does not necessarily need to map strongly onto performance gameplay. I think it's a real thing, and I think it can be a real problem um and in, in the sense that like i think this is where kind of like mediocre games kind of come from right is like gms and players not like honestly i think this is more of a gamist problem in some ways than it is necessarily like a performance a, a performer or, or uh problem which is like you know it's about you know it's a playing the playing D, &D like a video game essentially um which, you know, in terms of, like, speech options, right? Like, you kind of have to play it, like, you know, like, a video game, you can't have creative speech options because there's only so many things that, you know, uh, uh, a game can a game can account for, at least at the current point in time. Um, uh, but I do think it's a real thing. I, just, I don't see the tie as strongly to, um, uh, to performers. I do think the create and... What, what, what's it again? Create and... and uh, create and portray character. Yeah, create and portray character. I think that's a real thing. Um, I think I also. I don't know. I don't think it, I don't think it has to be a problem, but like I've seen it happen, right? Like in one of our ga games, uh, friend of the cast, Enoch, basically spelled out his character's arc um, uh, at one point. It's like this is the arc I want him to take, and I think it kind of like it happened. But it happened because Enoch was, like, basically playing it to himself. We barely recognized it, but he was, like, happy with it, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it, this is also kind of one of those things where it's, like, it's not a toggle, it's a slider to me. Mm. Um, sorry, just to also to define some terms. Okay, so push-button right. gameplay is the idea of me saying I roll a persuasion check to persuade the guard, and the GM goes, you succeed. Right. There's nothing, there's no, like, the decision is what skill do I roll? Does it succeed? And it, and it doesn't interface with the world or you don't have to actually sit there and explain to the guard why he should let you out of jail. Right. You just roll the dice and the thing happens or it, it doesn't. Right. Um, there are instances of push button gameplay that are pretty not, that are, that are not bad. Right. When you have to make an athletics check to climb, uh, you know, to climb whatever. That's that's push button gameplay, right? The the example you in the article is is yeah the example in the article is picking a lock, right? Like yeah, um, 
But it's not like you need to sit there and describe the the you know the intricate. Okay, well, I'm gonna you know like it's you don't you don't have to describe any of that stuff in order to do it. And a lot of the, and a lot of the times, I think people would be frustrated if I were to describe my you know my rogue unfurling his thing of thieves tools and then carefully selecting which one in order to like Jimmy the yeah. lock. Just describe the keyhole for me, right? Like yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that's the kind of thing. Um, but I think that when it becomes pernicious um, is in situations where it, it's sort of like, I actually think the real problem that gets described by push-button gameplay is um, the way it locks off interactions from other interactions. Right? I agree. For instance, the reason I use climb is because this was the first thing I was thinking about. Climbing is push-button gameplay, but it's never only that you can have push button gameplay in a world in which you are making interesting and creative decisions right when i'm playing a thief character and i know that there's an important thing inside the house and i climb up the 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 garden lattice to get to the second story of the governor's mansion in order to you know sneak into the open window in order to steal the you know the 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 deed of the property so that i can give it back to the rightful owner you know what i mean like that isn't push button gameplay even if there is one component in there that is push button right, right which was me climbing up the lattice i am still the character who's making the decision to to climb up the lattice and do the thing i think what happens is um, push-button gameplay is when you have not just the, the, the micro-interactions that feel lazy, but the macro-interactions are lazy, right? How do you get out of jail? I talk the guard into giving me the key, right? And all that's it. There's no, there, there's no other piece of the puzzle, right? Um, I think... I th So that's kind of like one piece. Uh, that's kind of like one piece of it. Um, I, 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 the other piece... Oh, sorry. Go for it. I would say I, I think an, another aspect of this is like it also pushes play like this kind of gameplay style pushes players into like playing to the skills rather than like like I think so. Angry Gems ideal loop. I also agree with this. Is kind of like it's not you don't say I am going to try to persuade the guard necessarily. You say I talk to the guard and I try and uh, you know. I try and bribe, you know, like, essentially you describe what you're doing, and then the GM, you know, like, I'm going to... I'm oh, going the to, GM assigns the skill to it? Yeah, right? It's like, this. that sounds like a persuasion check, you know, I like I need you to roll persuasion for me, unless you have, you know, a different approach you want to take or something like that, right? Like, um, which I think is, I, like, it is, it's a harder thing, it's, it's a harder thing to do, because I, I think, I think this is actually a thing that gets worse the more you play, Right? Um, or it's it's because you you kind of like know the system. Whereas when you're a new player, you just kind of like, well, my character would want it, it tries to do something like this, and the GM can like be like, you don't like since you don't know the rules, the GM can tell you what you need to do for that. But I think that's actually like more natural to like what D and D wants to be in kind of its ideal form, right? Like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, my in my instinct is to push back on that, but I think I wonder. I think I'm just a GM, <laughs> you know, like I'm thinking back to an interaction I had in a D&D &D game this week where, um, you know, I'm playing Mateo Vesquez, renowned smuggler. OK, um, Mateo has the smuggler background, 
which means that I have this ability called download, which is at any port of call, I, I can find a safe house based on like an old contact, right? You know, like somebody in the smugglers network and I can be, like exist in that town under the radar, under those sorts of conditions. Um, and the way that this played out, basically what happened was we were heading into this port on the ship and I said, okay, I want to use my background of down low in order to find a safe house to do to do this thing, right? And the GM, Rachel, obviously, my partner, was like, okay, this town, there is Isoldia, who is an old lover of yours. One of many, right? And uh, <laughs> and so we went back to the, you know, we went to Isoldia's house, she opens the door, she slaps me across the face, like all this other sort of stuff, right? Like funny, funny kind of like interaction kind of comes out of that. And then later, I said this thing where we were about to, she was like, okay, well, you guys can do this in the morning, but it's it's like, it's the middle of the night, you have to go to sleep. And I and we said, okay. And then I was like, can I roll a persuasion to get Isoldia to fuck me? <laughs> and she was like, yes, absolutely. Those are those are me dictating both my background and my skill to, I am applying this piece of my character to this part of the world. And I feel like that is a thing that is real that, uh, that like players can do. Um, but it is also, I feel like I have the instinct because I have GM'd a lot of games. My natural inclination in games probably is to GM them, right? So I am thinking on these kinds of terms, right? Whereas it is probably maybe correct if I were to say, okay, as a smuggler, I know I have context. And Rachel would go, yes, that's true. You do have context because of your background ability down low, right? Like this kind of a thing. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, no, and I, I think, like, the background ability, like, I think calling to skills isn't, or it's calling to, like, specific abilities like that, I don't think it's as big a deal, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, but I, I think the, like, role, like, I would like to roll persuasion to seduce this person. One, I, I think it's also kind of, like, relatively, like, not important thing, right? Like, it, it's not, like, but it's also kind of, like, I think ideally you, you would say, like, you know, I, as everybody else beds down, I tiptoe up to Isolda's door and knock <laughs> yeah. softly, right? Like, Yeah, true. This is also, like, at the very end of the session. Sure, right, right. Like, yeah, yeah. You no. know, me throwing a joke into the, like, a joke grenade into the middle of the campfire kind of thing. Yeah, right, like, you know, not everything. Only a Sith feels I also want to say, for the right? record, I rolled a nat 20. <laughs> <laughs> Which was really funny. The initial interaction. The initial interaction was um, was we got we we got there. She opened the door. She slapped me across the face. Right. Um, <laughs> and then she said, "How dare you come back here?" You know. She said, "How dare you come back here after you know after what you did with my sister?" And then I had Mateo. He was like, "Okay, <laughs> now I'm going to say something, and you have to promise not to be mad." But which sister? <laughs> and then she slapped me in the face again. <laughs> so it was pretty great <laughs> um anyway <laughs> in the chat rachel is trying to me trying to wrap up okay anything else buddy i rolled not 20 to fuck this character <laughs> and then and then i think lou rolled a perception check to to see if she could hear that we were having sex because we had we had described the place like she had a house she had like a little attic thing over her like garage or whatever it was I don't even know stable I guess um, 
And I don't know why Lou is like, we don't actually hear him next door. And Rachel was like, roll a perception check. And she did. And she rolled a nat 20 on the perception <laughs> check. So Lou heard every detail of that. Yeah, every detail of that night. Um, <laughs> but that's probably a good interaction, right? In, in terms of sort of this like push button gameplay, right? Do I hear this thing? The GM yeah. adjudicates, roll the roll the die according to you know whatever. Yes, no, sort of, sort of thing. Oh. Okay, but the other component about it, um, <laughs> the other component of it is this thing of like the create and portray character. Right. To me, this is another. This is sort of describing an improved character versus like a scripted character, right? Yes. A scripted character is one like we would describe with Enoch. This is somebody who's well written, has a long, intricate backstory, right? Um, and you expect to play out a pretty, pretty predetermined kind of character arc. Whereas an improv character is one where most details are sort of left on the fly and you are making them up on the spot. Um, this is a case of too much of one spoils the spoils the thing, right? I think both poles are awful in in that kind of spectrum. You have to be somewhere in, in between. Yeah. A fully scripted character is rigid and stiff and unfun to be in and play and play with because they never change and they're they're completely predictable and it's they're basically just running an algorithm, right? Um you know, this is kind of like lawful stupid sometimes will fall into sort of like this archetype where the character is so rigid and unflinching, um, even if even if it's, uh, you know, you could have any sort of alignment, lawful stupid is just like one version yeah. of this, um, that they react to every situation in the exact same way and they're constantly calling back to the exact same things and there's nothing interesting. They're never actually sort of like in the moment, right, um, with... Uh, in the moment with like any of the any of the other characters or any of the story right uh but a pure improv character is just like chaos right like this you know someone who is unbound by anything and everything and tends to be in my experience right like flighty and wildly inconsistent scene to scene because there's nothing kind of anchoring the character yeah. down not even a true personality right like most of the time it just tends to be like I don't even know. It's like uh... it's it's what the player wants to do at that moment, which can lead to yeah. things like you know, playing you know like being like dark and gravelly and kind of like evil, you know, not evil, but like you know edgy, right? Like antihero in one scene, and then jokey jokes in the next, which kind of like doesn't work as like a consistent character. So I I I, I, I see what you're yeah. saying. And I think also, interestingly enough, there's also the flip side of this, which is for GMs, right? There are improv and scripted GMs, and both poles of that are really awful, right? Fully scripted GMs just railroad you the plot, and that's no fun, right? Fully improv GMs tend to kind of be, give you this, like, amorphous slime, and there is nothing to kind of grab onto or hold interest in because right. it's all fleeting, right? You know, the, the, the kind of character conflicts are never, or, you know, the plot conflicts or whatever are never really going to amount to anything more or tie into anything else because it's all un I don't know it's all like undirected Rachel the chat buddy calling me out for not failing to prep for the last five sessions <laughs> well so that, that's a little different because like there's a difference between like a sandbox game where we are in a very sandbox game and a sandbox game you can rely on 
sort of players like me in our in our game with Mateo Vasquez, right? That game started with a pretty scripted first encounter. You know, we then we get our pirate ship, and now we get to sort of sail the seas and do what we want. And I, as a character, took the lead and mi started making decisions to drive the plot in a way that I was sort of like looking to to go sure. right and so my thing was hey we need to get official papers to register this boat so we need to go back to the port and sneak into the harbor master's office in order to steal though you know like in order to steal essentially a car registration right um that is me as a player sort of providing direction sure. to a to a sort of sandbox game i don't think that like anybody does anything wrong in those sorts of situations but um you know taken as their own right and essentially what i guess I'm, I'm sort of saying is i was a scripted character in a or I, maybe a simulated simulationist character in a uh, like making proactive decisions um in in an improvised world yeah and, and ju just to like put a bow on what the article talks about is the the kind of hook for the create and portray character from like a performer perspective is that the goal of the performer isn't to win the game it isn't to like follow the story it isn't to simulate the world it's to essentially um, act like basically act your character as if you were acting it in a play, right? Like you like the like um, winning is proper performance, like you know uh, what, what's the, is winning an Oscar, right? Yeah, essentially, right? Like um, you know, uh, story or or team cohesion be damned, right? Type 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 of deal, um. Which is kind of like, you know, any of the extreme polls are terrible, right? Like, this, this holds true for, like, all these these things, too, right? Like, you know, uh, we all know the guy who just, like, is mid-maxing his character because he likes to see number go up versus, like, the person who will do the stupid thing because, like, that's what my character would have done, even if it puts, like, a, a you know, a, a damper on the actual adventure. Yeah, I think that is put the 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 capability of these types of players to end up putting a damper on the actual adventure is like real i actually think kind of the most toxic of these in when i when i read these out of my mind i was like oh my god i hate i don't hate performative players i hate simulationist players because simulationist players tend to be obsessive about details of the world that i cannot give a fuck about right and i don't want to spend time on right you know which is like by, like going to shops to buy and sell items. Fucking shoot me. I would hate that, right? And so this is the, that was actually the thing that made me feel like, oh, I understand. Really what the Angry DM is talking about is um, he is, he, like, there are certain sort of playstyles he meshes with and certain playstyles that he doesn't, right? And, like, I, I would maybe consider myself a simulationist GM in the sense that I like to simulate very, like, cohesive comprehensive realistic worlds right but i dislike playing to simulationist ends right i want to have well thought out answers and like well supported sort of like structures to the world building that is that are going out uh that are going on but i never want to get wrapped up in the i want to go to the shop and buy from the shopkeeper which is like why in something like hell's rebels for instance right we i just automated that whole process and basically said between every session you guys can go to the you can go to a store right that See, kind of thing that that is interesting um because i'm thinking about some of my other experiences also some of the angry gm's older articles where um 
he engages with that kind of thing, but he also uses that to an end, right? Like, he's like, I have somebody actually go and sell stuff because that's an opportunity for me to have, like, the shopkeeper mention something. Or if I want to, like, give them, like, a hook, right? Like, the shopkeeper be like, can you, you know, could you deliver this package to, you know, are you, are you headed here? I will pay you to deliver this package, that kind of thing. Or, like, oh, I heard that, like, you know, there's a... Uh, there's, you know, some trouble on the other side of town. How are how are things out in the world, right? That kind of thing, uh, which I think is like, like I like that kind of thing because I think it keeps, um, it keeps those kinds of things in the world. And it's not it's not about the mechanics of actually buying and selling selling the items, right? It's about kind of like like I have in the five E game I play. Um, we've interact we we usually interact with the shopkeeps, and but that's also like it's a way to like get a pulse for like the world around us, right? And like. Talk. You know, that is actually probably interesting, and I think I probably agree, like agree with you on that end. I also think that one of the things that defined the way that we approached, like, we were pretty advanced players at the time, whereas sure. D&D 5e is less item-driven than Pathfinder 1e was, right? right? And not only was it less item-driven, or is, is it less item-driven, but Pathfinder 1e was a system we had a high degree of mastery in. So part of it is that, like, there are there are going to be players who are looking for extremely specific item loadouts, right? Um, but there were a lot of like the, the my whole thing in that game, right, was the the sort of narrativized items that you guys were getting, right? Um, that were conferring, uh, or not everybody was getting getting these, right? Some people, some you you're getting like the story feats, right? Um, but it's like uh, you know, it's it's like that kind of stuff. I definitely think there is a lot of opportunity to integrate those sorts of hooks into the sort of mundane experience of going to a shop and unloading a bunch of items. Yeah. So I, I actually I think this is one of the, one of the th the things the few things I like better about Five E over PF Two E is that okay. because there are because. This is like the only good thing I will say about like D and D not really being particularly online, like not having like an easily accessible database, is that like it's harder to know like the world of items that are available, right? So like in the five E game I play, it's like you know, like, can we get something like this? And the GM will be like, ah, you have, you know, like, you know, like uh, we needed something. We were getting scryed on. It's like, can we get something to protect us from scrying? And it's like, well, there's you know. You know, you know, in this town, there's like a black market guy, and we talked to him, and we we got it that way. But it's not like if I was playing Tui, I know like that I could go like find that item in a table somewhere on the website, right? And so like this is like a thing that happened with one of our very um, gamest friends that was like like the GM. It was this was um the GM at the time was like, no, you can't find like you know a burning dagger, right? Like. Then the player was like, but the burning dagger is like, you know, the best option because burning. It's is... bis, Mango. Well, well, but, <laughs> it's but basically, right, like it's, you know, it's 1d6 damage unconditionally, and that's always the best in every case, right? And and the GM was like, well, you don't have access to that. You found like a sneak attack dagger that does an extra d6 on your sneak attack, right? Or like an extra d6, 2d6. It's like, that's that's not optimal. It's like, well, like in D&D, in it feels like it is harder to know that those optimal things exist and thus it's, it's it's harder to play to and you don't have these kinds of like, you know, oh, I need to go find, like, you know, I need to go find like, you know, a helmet of uh, goggles of scrying. It's like, how does your character know that goggles of scrying exists? It's like, well, because I saw it in the table, right? Like, you know, whereas... Yeah, I mean, this, this reminds me of the classic... Uh the feet or whatever where you're unarmed i can't remember it's like beguiling strike or something where your unarmed attacks deal an extra d4 1d4 bleeding damage right um which is a feat that was written into a 
like wor like like world source book to describe the ways lawful evil monks in Chalayax or something, right? Like tapped into their their like the devilish whatever stuff, right? And um and there was a whole thing in Pathfinder 2E where they introduced rarity, right? Yeah. That, that certain stuff has, like, rarity, right? Because of this specific feat that got introduced, and immediately it got included in all the tables, and every monk ever took it, right? Because, yeah, 1d4 on... An extra 1d4 damage unconditionally with no prerequisite is the be is the best possible orientation, right? The best possible feat that I could put on my character, even if it is specifically targeted towards a very specific region of the world and an expression of a very specific type of monk who is using it. The The rules is written on that, you know, is it doesn't include any of that, right? Um, and so the introduction of, like, a rarity system for whatever is pretty is pretty good yeah. also uh rachel in chat says buddy early knows what his bis item is in 5e it's a bag of ball bearings that's true i am going to buy lots of bags of ball bearings because i like dumb bullshit like that okay yeah all right well um what else do we do? like? Do you have further thoughts on on this stuff? Like, I think so. Here's a, here's the question. Here's the question I have had. Actually, the ball bearings are a pretty good example of this. Um, I when I think of when I think of what I like to do as a player in D and D, right? Um, I am looking to be powerful. There is a gamist side of me that wants to maximize my skills and abilities, right, and use them to the best of you know whatever, right? Um, and there's also a real part of me that has a that has a kind of um, uh, sort of instinct towards excellence, I guess I would say, right? Like, I think I build powerful characters who are pretty good at doing powerful things. I think most people would probably look at Mateo, right? Even a character with a, with a detailed backstory and who's very narratively driven, all this other sort of stuff, right? And probably say that, like, the character sheet on paper, that's a pretty powerful rogue, right? This is a, this is a rogue character who's going to be doing rogue things, right? Um... And, and it is a well-built character for, for that purpose, to that end, right? Um, but the interesting thing to me is at what point does performance come out of gamist kind of instincts to master the system, right? Um, and I think the ball bearings are a really good example of that, right? Uh, it is an, It was an item that's included in a burglar's pouch or a thief's pouch, one of the, you know, like, whatever. One of the kits that you get on at level one. You get 100 ball bearings. And I feel like a lot of people look at that and they maybe think it's a flavorful detail or whatever. Um, and they go, oh, my God, haha, that's cute, right? Ball bearings, I bet you could do whatever with it, right? Um, but my character did something very specific with it, which was we're attacking this pirate ship. There's a bunch of bad guys. Most of our people are unarmed. So I pull out my ball bearings and I throw them all over the floor so that all of the bad guys are rolling around and tripping on on like the ball bearings, right? This is an opportunity for me to in to to you know like utilize a piece of my kit in a in an interesting and novel way in order to gain a, an advantage. I want to suggest that that's a gamist instinct, right? This is me maximizing, this is a min-maxer's instinct, right? I am maximizing my items to turn a, you know, whatever it is, five silver item into a multi-turn CC 
that is forcing checks on all of these like pirate like pirates or whatever right um but it is also sort of a performance right and like a it also has sort of like a performative instinct to it as well right because kind of in the way that we talked about um like push button gameplay right this is me looking at my character sheet for an interesting and unique way that I can interface with the situation that's not just about like defeating the encounter in the most efficient way possible, but also in like the kookiest way possible. Now, kooky is kind of the wrong yeah, way, yeah, but, but just like clever, right? You know, I want to be clever. It's like a scene out of a movie, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, which honestly almost sort of makes it seem like a like a you know like a narrative thing or whatever, which I, is also maybe true. It's just that I I don't want to do the normal thing. I want to do the clever thing. I want sure. to be like the you know whatever. And this is a character who is built to be very clever, right? Who is built to 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 think on his feet and do crazy stuff, right? There was all the whole thing. The the whole premise of the first session of that Mateo game is that all of the characters get kidnapped one by one to be part of a ritualistic deep sea eldritch abomination cult to sacrifice you know to sacrifice people to you know whatever like the kraken god or whatever um and just kind of because i was rolling well and i was being clever mateo was able to not get captured that whole time just because there was a bunch of dumb bullshit that I was able to to pull to sort of think outside the box and solve sort of problems where we otherwise would have gotten, you know, whatever, our our faces caved in and uh, and thrown in a jail cell kind of stuff. Um, anyway, I guess what, really what I'm suggesting is that part of the it's it's a slider, not a toggle. It's a heat map, right? Like not a toggle is that even individual actions are a heat map and not a sure. toggle, right? Um, and they have kind of like multiple sort of instincts that or like multiple sort of impetuses for, for what they're going for. Because part of what I'm doing when Mateo is doing clever shit is I'm performing. And part of what I'm doing when Mateo is doing uh, clever shit is I'm optimizing. Yeah, no, I, 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 I definitely see that. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think I think that kind of like. Yeah, I, 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 I think I think there's like a little bit of a difference there, but like I think I think you're I think you're mostly right. I think there's just kind of like this aspect of like, you know, um, I don't know, at least at least it's described in the article, right? Like the the create and portray part of this is like you know, and the character wants to describe the way that they do everything because that's like part of like what they enjoy about it, right? Is like they are performing performing the act, and I guess I see what you're getting. You're getting at the, there. Although yeah, <laughs> part of it is also that when I did the ball bearings thing, I did truly perform that whole action in excruciating detail. Where I talked about it's a little pouch in my hand, and there's a string, and I pull the string out of the pouch, and then I throw. You know, like that's performance, right? Um, and I think that yeah. you know th there was an example that the angry GM used in the article that's like very prescient, right? Which is the. Um, a reward for a performance-oriented player is how did you just kill that guy, right? Yeah. How did you just kill that enemy, right? I feel like player, like performance players go apeshit for that. And to be fair, I don't like that, typically. I'm not super interested in this kind of thing. Um, but it is, uh, it was a, it was a neat example, Yeah. I guess, that he used. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that, that makes, that makes sense. It's, <clears throat> it's the other part of that I thought was interesting is like, and they will like play the extremity of the action based on how 
high the role is, right? Which is like an, yeah, exactly. The that the role is part of the pro of the performance prompt. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, in the chat, Rachel says, "My buddy is leaving about his pacing description his pouch." I was like, "Okay, that's your turn. Now you're done." And he was like, "No, no, no. One more thing. You'll love this." And then described his little velvet bag for a minute. <laughs> I want to be clear. This was not me. We weren't in combat yet. There was no, this was in like narrative action. And we were just kind of hopping from character to character. Like, what are you doing when you're stealthing around the pirate ship? And I had just done a lot of stuff. And my last thing was throwing the bag, you know, the bag of ball bearings. Okay. I did save 18 of those ball bearings, which was the follow-up to this in the next session. Because <laughs> it was like, how many ball bearings are still on the deck of this ship? And so we rolled, I think it was rolling a d100 and then having the result to get 18 ball bearings okay <laughs> that makes sense uh she also says uh i can't believe buddy's gone this long without about clever opposition hasn't recounted the dragon suplex story the dragon suplex is very one-dimensional like, yeah. that to me is a raw gamist yes. right like there is th that example is all gamist there's nothing right. else you, you had it, you right? had the feats to, to to suplex things that are big and so you you did you you, you yeah you, you know you intoned the feet and used it right like that that is yeah and it, it it happened to work out in a particularly like you know fantastic way just because everyone was all around us we were perfectly suited so that everyone was taking advantage of that movement of all of the aoos or whatever that were that were going out i obviously got a million of them and i got to beat the shit of the dragon but it was also that i suplexed him into all of you guys and we were all pretty cracked in that game so we just like kind of tore the dragon to like tore the dragon to shreds right i feel like that is probably like the apex kind of moment for gamist oriented players right where it is like what is this way that i was able to you know defeat a really hard boss encounter in a single action in a single turn basically right that kind of thing yeah no it's we've had some of these moments in um in the pf2a game pf2e game i'm playing one of the pf2a games i'm playing and it's like you know my character just got like it's like Oh, I tripped the guy. It's like he tries to stand up. It's like, oh, then I'm going to use my attack of opportunity on him. And it's, that attack of opportunity triggers a trip attempt from me. And I knock him down. <laughs> <laughs> I do really love trip gaming. I think trip gaming is pretty yeah. fun. I also, uh, you know, it's funny because um, uh, I also think that that kind of stuff can, like, feels like clever and the dragon story is a good one but it is also maybe like the least interesting version of that i possibly could have pulled off right you know it's not like you trip someone into a i don't know a thing right like an environmental detail it was just like a big non-discriminate cave and i just happened to be the first person to act in the turn and i got my trip attempt off on a dragon that i probably you know like i'm sure if i were to look at the rolls i had to roll really high in order to get that just because of what you know a dragon's sort of defense would be um and all and all this other sort of you know like everything yeah. everything and, but, but then it, right. it turned into like that scene from jojo where everybody's just like kicking the guy that's down right this is basically what we yeah, did yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, it's interesting because like I can I can pretty easily visualize what I think like a raw performance like the the apex of for a kind of like gamist or like performance or like narrative right like a narrative player the raw like like the the apex of that is like giving a really heartfelt speech getting into character and like progressing the story in a new or interesting way right so for instance maybe like a good apex narrative moment might be like the moment that you guys chose to ally with Barzillai Thrun, who had been the villain up to that point in the campaign, rather than 
rather than continue to fight him and treat him as a villain, right? That is a, a moment that was entirely narrative-driven, right? All, and all about, right, where are we as characters in this story and where do we want the story to go from, to kind of, like, go from here, right? Um, but I don't feel like I have a great sense for what, like, uh, what is, like, the apex of, like, a simulationist player, right? What is something a simulationist player does that is, like, the greatest? Um, hmm. I think I think part of that is like um part of it is like you know discovering something about the world right like I, I think there's less like a like full apex moments but like you know um you know like discovering like a mechanic of the world right and seeing how that works or like um successfully tracking a thing such that it results in like you know like a kind of just as planned moment right like you know ah and you know the second blood moon is going to come up tonight and so i will have the opportunity right like to uh you know defeat this enemy or whatever right like the, i because i engaged with the world as it was i was able to like do this thing that um that isn't necessarily like like follow follows like a convenient story arc or whatever but it, you know it, it makes sense in in kind of the you know it's like well everybody has to go to sleep so i you know, I wait for the the character to fall asleep, but then I bring into his house or something like that, right? Like, I, I feel like that's kind of more in that. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I think I, I think I probably agree on on that sort of level. I only, I honestly almost think it's like the quiet, you know, like the quiet moments, like the shopkeeper yeah. moments, right? You know, where it's like, um, or even something as simple as like a callback to something. Um, I can't really think of a good example of this, but I'm sure there there would be a million of them, right? Um, where it's like, you know, your characters met something in book one, like a met a person in book one. You saved uh, the the blacksmith's wife from the cobalt, right? And then in book three, you need a good blacksmith in order to, you know, whatever, smelt down the evil sword. And somebody goes, oh, do you guys remember that blacksmith from book one? We should go back to him. So you go back to that town, talk to the blacksmith. He goes, yes, of course I can smelt down the evil sword, like that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And those moments are so quiet. Nobody ever, nobody ever like thinks about or remembers that, that kind of stuff I feel like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> Do we have anything else we want to talk about on the, on the subject? I have a, I have an interesting side question sure. uh, on this subject, which is relating to the, our favorite topic, which we haven't talked about in a long time, the sacred contract. Ah, right. Um, I, I thought you were going to say the Fast and the Furious. I was like, how's he going to bring that in here? <laughs> that, that would be pretty funny. No, it's funny because I was thinking, I was having a conversation with another friend of mine um, where she just quit a D&D game. She basically let her character die. Um, she willingly for like forewent death saves so that her character could die and she could exit this game kind of gracefully uh, because she wasn't having a good time. She was, she was really mad about sort of like the state of the game. Um, and I'm interested, I don't know, I'm, I was just sort of like interested in that. We ended up talking about that a whole bunch because um, she, she was talking about how the game, um, she's talking about how the game was essentially breaking the narrative contract, right? Or the sacred contract. Uh, what happened was they were looking for her. They found out they were like doing a, a dungeon dive on a prison and um, the, like the prison was like rioting or was on fire or something like that. There was like some like impetus, right? And her character's mother was in the prison and, um, and they went into the prison. They found her character's mother unconscious right at zero hit points essentially um and she used cure 
wounds on it. And the GM ruled that the, that the mom doesn't wake up. She's alive, she's breathing, but she's not conscious, right? Um, and it was, it was this, it, she portrayed it as sort of like a straw that broke the camel's back moment, right? But it's this kind of thing of like, also, you use cure light wounds, you, you whiff the spell slot, and now the thing doesn't, you know, like, and, and it's, just, it's just like a huge kind of fuck you. Right, moment. yeah. The, like, it's like... Effects don't fall By from the, cause, as reasonably interpreted. Yeah, yes, exactly. <clears throat> and um, and so, you know, whatever, like, they, they, I think she dies in this fire or something like that. You know, she was describing, like, the whole sort of situation. Um, I'm just interested, where, like, where does your head come down on some of this, uh, on some of this stuff vis-a-vis the narrative contract? Um, or, I'm sorry, I keep saying that, the sacred contract. Um, I, I, I... I am not seeing the direct kind of like uh, through line here. Can 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 you speak a little bit more to that? Like, okay, uh, I, to put my cards on the table, I guess I'm just pitching sort of my thing. I think maybe I want to pitch an evolution. I guess I would say of the narrative contract or of the, the sacred contract, contract to sort of these four poles almost right because the thing it feels like the, the our old arguments about the sacred contract were about were a simulationist versus narrativist argument right because my point about the sacred contract is that the gm's rule is word is law and they can make stuff happen in ways that players don't expect um and your point was that the rules are the rules of the universe and it it breaks a contract to have an, unintru- an unintuitive interaction because those rules don't interact kind of well. And, like, that's obviously a bastardization. It's not yeah, quite yeah. my point, not quite your point, right? But just generally, it's kind of where we, like, so when you used to have these arguments in, like, 2016. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, and so, like, what's – so, like, your, your pitch is that, like – that these four things are like outlined the corners of the contract or, so, or something like that. I think I think what I'm saying is there's actually four simultaneous contracts that are agreed to by players and GMs, and there's a mismatch between, you know, listen, this is a simulationist fantasy, okay, the throwback that's happening in, the, in this in this podcast. Basically, there is a gamist contract that is the GM is going to run a well balanced you know interesting like mechanically interesting game the the narrative contract would be uh, the gm is going to run a um an interesting compelling story right like all these four things right and different players in the gm can kind of disagree and have sort of like because i think the core of our sacred contract argument came down along these lines right to what end is it important that the 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 simulation of the world hold up versus to what end is it important that the narrative of the game is satisfying? Does that make sense? Yeah. No, no. And, and so yeah. I th- I think part of this is that like it's not just like that there are four contracts. It's that the that the outlines of those vary per game and like you want to establish that early on, right? Like yeah. if you are interested in a dungeon crawl right like there's like a pure gamist game right like it doesn't really have a lot of narrative bones on it that's fine but everybody at the table has to be okay with that right like if the gm doesn't want to run that game then you know that's not the game that gets run if the players don't want to play that game then that game is not for those players right like um and i i think that's i i think you know 
I think the issue with the sacred contract was an attempt to universalize it when I think it's more per per table per per instance. And then, you know, sometimes you have to feel this out through play, right? Like, um, yeah, I think at this point, honestly, my opinion on the sacred contract has probably evolved. If I were to go back and listen, yeah. I would probably disagree with myself because I think I think mostly I, would you, I would probably say I would agree with myself. Skill oh, really? <laughs> well, okay, I would say it's mostly a skill issue. Um, yeah. Because I was having a conversation, I was having this conversation with this woman. I brought up the case of, do you remember burning blood from Hell's Rebels, right? The the infection, the beastmen have this blood. If you imbibe it, right, you can, you, you start taking saves and you have to do whatever um, to not sort of, um, uh, to not get... Uh, yeah. In fact, okay, whatever, whatever yeah. affected by the blood. And I remember there was this moment where I hadn't realized that the spell Delay Poison Communal existed, where Jimmy had taken this spell because we had had a bad interaction with Burning Blood, and he was like, I never want that to happen again, so whenever Beastmen show up, I can just cast a Delay Poison, and we're all basically immune to it, right? Um, which wasn't quite how it worked out in play, um, but in my, in my eyes, this was a pretty good interaction of the Sacred Contract, right? Which is to say that um, I had the first interaction of the Sacred Contract, it behaved like a poison, and so the player took a thing to you nullify that effect on sure, the, yeah. the burning blood, right? Um, I did not say, oh, well, it's not actually a poison. You just took that spell like a fucking idiot for nothing because I did want burning blood to play out in more, you know, in like longer circumstances. But the thing that we ended up kind of sort of settling on is that delay poison just truly delays the poison, right? And once the spell is up, the poison is still in the person's system and they have to sort of deal with it, which I think technically is sort of like more like a curse at that point. Like the poison creates a curse or something kind of along those sorts of lines or whatever. But in my mind, that was that's a skill issue solution, right? Which is that like I was able to sort of, you know, create my, or I was able to maintain my ends of this is a danger you have to deal with, right? Um, while at the same time, working within the bounds of yeah. the, you know like the mechanics of uh the 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 sort of you know the sort of contract because technically speaking i think if it was a poison it wouldn't work that way but like it is a fair enough kind of way to make it to make it all play out that it worked out the way that it did if that if that makes sense i feel like I, that was a very confusing story but fucking whatever <laughs> yeah no, no 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 i i i think i i think i agree with you right like that like um that there's aspects of this that it's just about like something just about like doing it well right like you know like the, like like the thing you describe about the cure light wounds not waking up the person right that feels like that feels like it's denying an agreed upon effect whereas like you could play like if there was a reason that that character really couldn't be conscious like maybe there's a better way to play around it right like um I don't know. Matt. Yeah, I feel like what are what are like five e uh, status effects? I feel like that's what I would go for, right? I would be looking for like conditions or some shit, right? Um, that where I could say, oh, you know, um, oh boy, oh boy. It's just like, you know, it, I even think you probably could have saw that narratively, right? In the sense of, um, you know, if you walk up to a person and their head is cracked open. Right, and they're gushing blood. 
cure light wounds isn't going to fucking fix that. You know what I mean? And I think players would kind of intuit that level. But when a person is just kind of non-denominationally unconscious, it is a really intuitive answer to say, I cure light wounds. Bring them back to, you know, yeah, kind yeah. Of like one hit point. Um, they, should, they should be able to, like, get up and walk just fine. And it's like, that isn't what happens, right? Even if you know the woman does wake up but she has like an extreme level of exhaustion right or a, or a level of paralysis right like those are sorts of things that you probably could have relied on right. um in order to communicate this level of whatever yeah no i i i, I absolutely agree um and yeah i i i don't know i i don't i don't know. i feel, i feel like you know, with regards to like the sacred contract stuff with with like a perform a performance place player, I think it's kind of like a thing that you want to like establish with the GM ahead of time, right? Be like, I you know, it is important to me that I get to describe my hits, and the GM can say like, sorry, that's not a thing I do at my table, or it's like, okay, that's a thing that I can accommodate, right? Like, um, and I think I think part of the problem is like all of these different play styles exist, right? Like, so so I, I don't think it showed up in the article, but I think it was maybe in the. Um, I, so I so because I'm a Patreon supporter of uh, Angry GM, I get like these read aloud, and sometimes he includes extra commentary. And also, this is also where he does the Q and A part. And in one of them, he said something about like you know, <clears throat> at some point, the narrativist <clears throat> and the simulationist, like to your point, were not part of the core thing. And if those are the things you enjoy a lot, then you have to recognize that those are things that that got incorporated into the game as it went on, and got incorporated into the mechanics of the game, and that we ex and that you should expect that moving forward. Wizards and probably Paizo will start to incorporate performance, you know, uh, performer-based uh, kind of things into the core rules so that it becomes more of a kind of the core experience of the game, um, for better or for worse, right? Um, and I think part of it is that, like, if this is, like, the thing we talk about with, like, you know, if it's if it's in the book, it feels more real, right? Like, if... If you don't know that that's a thing you need to ask about, it's a thing that can like lead to friction, right? Like, you know, if you don't, if you just assume like, oh well, the GM's never gonna like the GM's just gonna let me describe my hits because that's like a thing that happens in D and D. It's like, well, it that actually depends, and you need to know to ask that question, right? Yeah. Um, and I'll, especially because like hit points and stuff like that is very amorphous, right? Yeah. There are a lot of people who think of hit points as like dodging and weaving right and there are a lot of people who think of hit points as like well he cuts almost all of your arm off but you still have three hp so you're fine right <laughs> like yeah um uh, rachel in the chat says yeah i mean i definitely get not wanting the npc to get like one hp and just be fine like me being hey like i need you to uh have a reason to drive a tank because the tank driver's in bad shape but i also need him a lot to teach you so he's real hurt but please stop healing him and learn to drive um <laughs> That's a reference to our our uh, our dwarf our Warcraft dwarf game where we're driving a tank in occupied because I would call it occupied Lordaeron right um, during the during Warcraft three when like the Scourge are invading there was a whole thing about trying to heal this fucking this fucking dwarf tank driver when we needed somebody to be the new tank driver and learn to drive the tank. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think I think part of that is that like the game has like the game has tools for like doing these things but they don't come up a ton right like like the way you solve that problem just off the top of my head is like you have the tank driver's arms be broken right and there are mechanics for that but that's not like a thing you interact with typically right it's not like there is a risk on average of you having a broken arm 
in like you know a normal battle even though kind of like from a simulation point of view maybe there is and so it's like it can feel like an ass pull if you do something like that but like i don't know i feel like having this i i, I think like having those systems in the game is the way you deal with it right it's like you know yeah you could probably have your yeah. <clears throat> yeah. i one of, one of the things i think is uh Players, I, I actually think this is true for players and GMs. We probably don't use... Now that I'm, like, looking at the status conditions, I would probably say that the status conditions are, like, the way to handle this, right? You would say he is so injured that he has exhaustion, right? That yeah. he has a he has a exhaustion for this, whatever. He has, like, a level of exhaustion that makes it so that he can't operate, the like, the tank. That's not something you can fix with <laughs> The, the tank driver pulls out his OSHA manual and says, I haven't had 16 hours of sleep, so I can't drive this tank anymore. Or else I will, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> will violate department regulations. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a tough thing to deal with too, right? Like, you know, um, I over Christmas or over New Year's actually, I ran a game for my girlfriend and her family, essentially some of her friends. And like I had like the it's it's this like kitschy kind of like there's a winter market and it's like the season of you know it's the holiday of like lights right it's basically like you know a Christmas thing right and it's like okay so the goblins attack in the market and there's like three different hooks and if they pick up on any of them they can move to the next part and they dropped all three hooks on the ground um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like all right well how do we go from here and it's just like me on my you know just trying to be like because uh, like you know. There was a goblin that was holding back. It's like, maybe don't kill that one. They kill him. It's like, there's a note on one of the bodies. And, like, the rogue picks it up. And it's like, do you want to share it with the party? It's like, no. It's like, okay. <laughs> and then the guard shows up and is like, would one of you be willing to talk to the captain of the guard? And they're like, no, fuck you. It's like, okay. <laughs> what do, what, like, it's like, so it's like, all right, so what do you guys do? And they're like, well, what's the next thing to do? It's like. Uh, maybe go talk to the captain of the guard. Maybe go to, like, you know, like, you know, you you had heard that there was, like, a thing happening over there. Like, you know, it's like you kind of have to – sometimes it can be tough to anticipate those things and deal with them. And it's just, I think, the thing that comes with practice for, for some of that, right? Like, um, um, I – feel you and i feel that for sure uh especially because like you know it's one thing to me to me this is the difference between passive and active players right. actually i feel like the more i have dm'd the more i appreciate players who are actually willing to sort of get up and go to just get it do it and get it done you yeah. know what i mean kind of like actually the thing i was describing a little bit with mateo right it's like we had a pirate ship we could go anywhere but i was the one who said we i want to get a legal registration for this even though we did just steal this pirate ship right um we're gonna go break into the harbor master's office and forge it basically right like that is the kind of active player decision making where they are right like i don't necessarily need players to pick up on the plot hooks that I put down for them, but I do need them to have an investment in driving the story forward. Right. Giving, giving, you know, some sort of, uh, yeah. I don't know, traction to, to movie, th moving things, uh, forward. <laughs> listen to how great a player I am as a player. Ooh la la. I'm the great player. You know, listen, when I start making worse, bad examples, right. You know, it's not my fault. I'm just such a perfect example of a perfect D&D player. Okay. No, so th this is actually a thing that like, uh, like the Angry GM talks about sometimes again, just to go back to that. Well, it's like, you know, um, put 
like let your players do anything but put like an option in front of them and nine times out of ten they'll pick the option that you put in front of them right like, or put a couple options in front of them, nine times out of ten they'll pick one of them but they feel like they can pick the other ones too and that makes things fine right like um yeah but i definitely do feel you this is a thing that i've thought about with like i know when i'm playing a game that's like an adventure path that like I feel like I'm on the rails, so I feel like less driven to like kind of like drive in those directions. I also feel like this happens in online games a little bit more because it's easy. It's easy to get distracted, right? Um, uh, but like, there's definitely games that I play like that I play that like you know where that's like an important thing, right? Like the five E game I'm playing where, where we're kind of like towards the end of it, and it's like there are two months left until like you know the world-ending cataclysm happens, and you have to get ready for it, right? And so it's like okay, we need to figure out what we're doing and it's like driving us to action. But before that, it was kind of like, well, we know some things are happening. Let's like follow up on this lead, right? And it's just kind of like like flowed together pretty well. Um, (laughs) Me looking over at Buddy sitting next to me while I'm GMing. Are you fucking raiding right now? I was farming herbs in Zerolite Cavern, okay? I was just keeping the fingies busy as I was... uh, I don't even remember what, what we were doing in the early... Oh, as I was, I was, I was, I was going and persuading the whole ship to name name Mateo captain of this ship that we don't have a name for. <laughs> you were well, doing, doing the super bloom. bloom, whatever. It's the same shit. It's it was just idle bullshit, right? Yeah, super, super bloom stuff. isn't hard. It's not like, you know. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of thought that goes into like that level of uh, you know, <laughs> uh, that level of gameplay. Anyway, how you doing, buddy? How's your how's your fucking week? I'm not buddy. You're buddy. <laughs> Somewhere along the lines, I picked up Bud and Buddy as my, like, easy, I don't know, just, like, breezy ways to, like, refer to people, oh, yeah. I guess. Um, um, I, and, and it's just, like, it's it's obviously very confusing. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing with myself. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember, but once when we were in college, like, I saw you and a different friend, like, across the quad, and I, like, waved at the first friend, and then I'm like, hey, buddy. And you were, like, right next to him, but you didn't know him. And he's like, yeah, I already waved at you. I'm like, no, but he's buddy. And, you know, and, and trying to communicate this from across the quad to the two of you. Uh, apparently. Yeah, complicated. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, in terms of what I've been doing this week, um, I watched The Beekeeper, which is super fucking stupid, but I love it. Right? Like, like it is everything you, you exactly expect. Right? We might do an episode on this if you get to see it soon, so I won't give too many things. But, like, you know. One of the, like, the entire night, I saw this with girlfriend, the entire night after, just like, we have to protect the hive, right? Like, just making stupid beep ups. They're all over the fucking movie, right? Like, um. I, okay, I'm sorry. I need to, I need to look this up. This is, um. It's a Jason Statham movie. action movie. It is David Iyer, yeah. This yes. is the guy, this is Suicide Squad. Um, yeah. You know, famous, and, famous director of Suicide Squad. Among others, um. There was something else that he did that I was like I was familiar with too. Fury um, is that is the World War II tank movie mm. that I really like. Um, there's the God. What was the fucking other one that he did? Bright. Uh, oh, he did. Ah, right, right, right. Do uh, uh, do. I thought I. I don't know. Anyway, point being is. Uh, he did. Uh, he did all like, or it's a stupid movie, but it's fun, and uh, it's that's that's basically it. 
Um, I listen, hey man, I'm a fan of Jason Statham. Okay, so you 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 sold me. I actually did intend to go this weekend, but then I was like, I'll go tonight. And I looked over and I saw that it was 11:30 p.m. And I was like, okay, well I guess I won't go tonight. <laughs> um, uh, what else did I do? I uh, I watched three more episodes of The Sopranos, and like, um, I am loving it. Um, uh, and uh, although I, I I think I'm gonna say that like. I get the device part of the psychiatrist stuff, like like what its purpose is, but I also think it's kind of like a little bit. It's the stuff that feels like the least real to me. Um, uh, like it's 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 the thing that like if something's gonna break my my kind of like immersion, it's gonna be the psychiatrist scenes, um, and so they are they have become my like kind of like least favorite parts. Um, Interesting. The psychiatrist stuff is typically my favorite part. I want to say, but not not. I don't know. So some of it feels too like trite, right? Like it's like you know, it's like you know, you know, psychiatrist explains a thing to Tony, and Tony's like, "So you saying I don't love my mother?" It's like, okay, I get it. I I, I get what you're going for there, right? Like, um, but also just like the maybe it's maybe it's just particularly the stuff where he's like, you know, like I'm in love with you, which is just kind of like that felt weird to me. Also felt like weird that like she would continue like the the the, the patient relationship post that. I, I do think that is a pretty common thing with psychiatrists. I oh, actually really? had a, a completely unrelated question or a, a completely unrelated um, conversation with a woman I know who's a psychiatrist. Um, or I guess she's technically not a psychiatrist. She's a psychologist. Um, I, uh, she explained the difference to me or whatever. But she talked essentially about how she doesn't like therapy because uh, patients can fall specifically men tend to fall in love with female patients because um she kind of explained this as a like there are just a lot of sort of emotionally repressed guys who kind of need a comforting empathetic woman in their in their lives and so when a psychiatrist who is to be clear being paid to have that sort of like empathy um you know kind of shows up uh they they don't know how to process that in any other terms than love they fall like they fall in love with her or whatever um i think this but is, this is funny because this is also like this this is also like the thing like you know people like men who think they, that the stripper is in love with them like basically that's a lot of it right it's like you know um you if you pay for booth time with a stripper, she'll listen to you talk about whatever. And like, you know, it's easier yeah. for her. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Cause she's, cause she's doing like the t listening thing instead of like the dancing part. Right. Like, uh, yeah. I also don't know that I think, you know, like, I don't know that I think I, I maybe, maybe it's just like, uh, uh, like people I know or the people, the person I am or whatever. Right. Uh, she's Danish. Right. So it's like, I feel like it's just going to be different in Europe than it is in the U S it's going to be different in, los angeles than it is in wyoming right yeah, yeah. you know like there's just so many other like different factors to this obviously um but uh uh yeah it was it was pretty funny um i i i really love the scenes with with dr melfi but i think i probably say they get better over time i okay. think the early scenes probably do suck probably well, i mean it it might also be just like the things I'm finding interesting about the show, right? Like, like, like I said, I sometimes I feel find the psychiatrist kind of trite, but like a big part of my enjoyment of the show is like me looking at it and seeing essentially like you know a childhood akin to my own happening, right? Like you know, like some of the stories that Tony tells sound like my dad telling a story, 
right? And like that's a, that's a big draw for me. And like the, the psychiatrist part is is definitely not that. So maybe maybe that's part of it. Um, uh, uh, but yeah. Um, and then I've been playing a ton of Street Fighter, and I've been getting back into Cyberpunk, which I've been very much enjoying. I think the re the revamp okay. skill system's good. I'm still kind of like going through stuff that I've gone through like three times before. Um, but like it's uh, it's still uh. It's still super fun. I, I'm trying to get into it more. Um, I have... Uh, <laughs> Buddy's just drawn to watching <laughs> the Sopranos for, sandwich, for the sandwiches. The sandwiches are pretty good, I will say. <laughs> do you... Do you? Are you going to go to the Satrials? I don't know if it's still actually there. Uh, like the the pork market or whatever. It's in. I think it's in Patterson or something. I would say I have, I have like my own... Uh, my own del- like places to go back home that are like equivalent, essentially. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I obviously, I obviously too. I'm actually going to be back on the East Coast probably this summer, uh, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, I was just like, oh my god, I've, I could go to this like Sopranos landmark, right, um, and get a, uh, get one of their fucking probably dog shit sandwiches, because uh, <laughs> I bet they're going to have like pastrami, and I'm not a big pastrami or corned beef guy. Wow. Actually, I bet I would like it. if it is, a, if it is an Italian, I like Italian delis. I tend not to like Jewish delis. I was if it's uh, pastrami Jewish- and. That that that's more of a Jewish deli thing, right? Like the yeah, the that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Italian delis are more are more like you know the the gabagool and the yeah, because that's what I want. I want like uh you know I want cold cuts. Yeah, right? yeah, Italian cold cuts. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, but uh, but cyber, cyberpunk's fun. Um, <laughs> how are the sandwiches in cyberpunk? Is really what we need to know. Uh, they give you a long term health regen buff. Uh, <laughs> so are you playing the new content? Are you talking, have, playing the Idris Elba? So I'm. I have not hit the new content yet. I am playing the new content in the sense that like it came with a big systems overhaul, and so okay. like like the skill trees are all different now. Um, like pistols are in the the cool tree, um, as well as bladed weapons as opposed to being in like the reflex tree, uh, the dex tree. Um, okay. Uh, and then uh, I was. I have downloaded Power World and Instructed, and I'm sure we'll, we'll have things to talk about there. But uh, how was your week? I haven't played either of them yet. What if I told you that I hate Pal World and I don't want to play it out of out of spite, out of anger? I think it looks like shit. I think it looks dog shit. That was my read on Pal World. I was like, this looks terrible. Why would anybody like it? It's like the hugest game of the year already blowing out all of this other, you know, <laughs> it's what everyone's playing. Yeah, so so my my thing <laughs> is that like I didn't particularly care about it, but then once like once people started getting angry at it for reasons that I thought were bad, I was like, I should play this game, um, like out of spite, right? Like, you know. Do you do you want to talk about those reasons, or the or do you not care? Let's, uh, so, um, I think it's like accusations of AI and accusations of plagiarism. I feel like are like the two yeah. cornerstones. Um, yeah. I also I just like you know. Granted, I work for a large tech company that has a significant <laughs> interest in AI. I work for Google. Bard's a big thing, right? Um, I do not work on Bard for what, what it's worth. What the fuck is Bard? Bar- is that their AI? Yes, it's 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 the it's the Chat GPT equivalent. You can try it right now. Okay. Bard.google.com. <laughs> my statements do not uh, do not uh do not reflect the opinions of my employer. Um, where where did you go? I didn't go anywhere. Okay. Um, I just had to. I realized that I cracked a soda before the podcast, <laughs> and it was on the table over there. Okay. This whole time, and I was just like, man, I really wish I could be drinking fucking soda right now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, so like, um, I think AI is great, right? Like I do not like have any of the qualms that anybody does about using AI. Like when everybody says like, well, it's taking work away from like, 
I think there's a thing to be said about like copyright stuff. And I think that's deeper, but I, I see like a lot of kind of like, you know, it's taking work away from artists. and like, this is how every piece of technology works, right? This is like, you know, the pity, the bu buggy whip maker, right? Because of cars, right? Like, so I don't get incensed. Like I don't get incensed over AI. It doesn't appear that there's any even in the game, but like, I think AI is great. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's like a great tool for people to use. So like that kind of thing just like sets me off and kind of like, I feel like people are being Luddites, but. Okay. Yeah, I guess I do understand. I, I, I'm half of that. I'm half of that argument, uh, right? I, yeah, <laughs> Rachel wants, I want to fight Mango well, on this. Rachel, Rachel's I, an artist. I'm sure she has like, you know, that perspective on it, right? Like, you know, it's coming from my yeah, job too, I, just to be clear, right? Like, you know. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I think the copyright argument is real. I think the other argument is, is kind of fake, right? Like, I don't super care about the broad reaching, right? Like, oh, think of all the people who are going to lose their jobs because of AI, because frankly, I think AI is garbage like it's just, it's just bad it's garbage right you know i have yet to see ai really anything where it's not better on the margins if that makes sense right so for instance a good example of this might be something we talked about this a little bit with like the finals or whatever right the the voice acting in that game is ai ai driven and to the best of our knowledge right like all the copyright stuff like the under underlying copyright stuff is pretty you know is is like nickel and dimed right a, a voice actor consented to have an ai voice profile made by their you know made by the thing and, the, and the, implement, implemented in the game that's fine that's fair enough my problem is that i just think it's bad right the you would not use an ai to write the underlying code to the gunplay of the finals right in the same way that you wouldn't use an ai to make the animations right to frozen three by disney it's like only a human artist in my view can replicate those sorts of things and so insofar as people want to i guess include that stuff maybe if you're making a super crunchy game i could get on i could say i'm okay with ai being used to like like if you want to use chat gpt i guess if you want to use chat gpt to write the npc dialogue I would probably say that's okay for like an indie game or something where the point of the game is to interface like with like the mechanics or whatever. But I just feel like the, the quality is so dog shit on all this AI stuff that I would never ever think of it as like going into the final product in a way that I would like un with, without that person being there on the job. Does that make sense? Are you familiar with the, with the good to pay problem? Mm -mm. So have you ever like the, he's like, I've never seen a good to pay but that's because if it was a good to pay, you wouldn't see it, right? Like, I think there's some... Oh, interesting. I think there's some of that with AI, right? Like, you know, um, I, th I think, for the record, I think what you're talking about with, like, with, with like art stuff, I think art isn't quite there yet um, for a lot of cases. Because um, I think it just, like, it, it has some weird stuff. But, like, you know, um, there, are, there are IDs that use this. I can tell you that I have used assistive AI like every day, like it's just kind of like built into some of the tools I use. Um, and it kind of like makes my development faster, right? Um, or even like, just like even asking chat GTP, GTP, GPT some stuff about like, you know, how a library works um, can help, right? Or asking it like, I think to your point, like, you know, like typing something into chat GPT and copy pasting it into the finished product, that's not going to happen um, for a while at least. But like, you know, typing it in and then like using that as a basis for something else, right? Like, 
Um, for example, um, uh, recently in uh, it, we were talking about Lancer, which is a game I played with Nick and some other people. And he was like, I don't have time to like custom write enemies because they like they never finished their like built-in campaign. It only went up to a certain point. I was like, I wonder if Bard could like you know design a couple enemies, and it gave some cool concepts, but like it wasn't like the stats weren't right or whatever, right? But I think that kind of like here's some ideas you can get started is good. To Rachel's point in the chat, uh, like Pity the Buggy Maker, because the car maker stole the wheels off the Buggy Maker's buggy to put it on the car without permission. I think the copyright stuff is real. I think there's a, a longer discussion to be had there. Um, I think if I'm going to be like the most charitable I can to AI, there's like a level of like, what's the difference between somebody looking at a piece of art and trying to ape that style versus the AI, AI doing it? I get like not not uh consenting to having it be in the generation code in the first place but um like you know i think you can... yeah i i also agree with that take on like the copyright stuff i think at the end of the day as a person who owns copyright it just makes fundamental sense to me that there is no version of things where you where, or there's no world in which you should give up your copyright without kind of consent yeah that no sense, I, right? I i agree like, with that yeah, if somebody wants to build an AI by paying every artist $500 for submitting their art to it, I like that would be kosher, right? You like you can pay somebody for your in the same way with the with the like the voice acting thing or whatever. It's like I mean, I don't know, outside of maybe like I guess there's like always the questionable is someone getting ripped off or exploited? That's like an edge case that like you don't need to adjudicate, but I feel like copyright holders absolutely should have the right to deny their inclusion. And I think that there probably have been some platforms that have been doing stuff that is the opposite of that. Right. Yeah. Or um, like, which is bad making assumption or like, I think it's also possible that like people are giving up their rights in ways they don't anticipate. Right. Like a lot of places like, have you grant like a license? Like I think I think Facebook has you grant them a license to like anything you post on Facebook, right? Like that's part of their terms. And it's like I bet you a lot of stuff in Meta's LLM, which is I don't not not commercially available um, at the moment. But I bet you a bunch of that stuff is built off of Facebook data. And technically, you've consented to that, even though that doesn't feel right. Um, uh, and you know, and so I I I I, I definitely get that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I also hate the, the you know, go to look up images on the internet and half of the results are AI generated. I hate all of that. Just But this is part of my, I just think AI stuff is dog shit. I, I am pretty much on board with any version of things where it's like, this is true even in my, like my work, right? Like something I've told my team is I've said, hey, if you want to use AI to make your job easier, like do that, like work smarter, not harder kind of thing. That's fine. But there's no version of things where I want something that is AI made or written or whatever that goes live, right? Like that's unacceptable. Direct from AI to live. Based. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like if I'm an artist and I want to, you know, and I, and I want help on a composition and I put a bunch of, I make a mood board and I put a bunch of stuff into whatever thing and the mood board spits out this thing and I use that composition to make my art. Like that is no different to me than somebody use it just using those references, right? Like that's fine. Um, the issue would be if somebody were to just like throw that stuff into the whatever, the AI thing and then 
hit me with the art and I would just be like, like that that's unacceptable. Or like somebody was gonna write a press release and they went to Chat GPT and they said, Hey, can you write this press release for me? It's like I, I just I can't trust Jet Chat GPT to understand my message like my messaging goals, right? It it like obviously it's like a powerful piece of technology and everything like that, but at the end of the day, it doesn't understand higher level like networked sociological sure thinking right yeah, you yeah, know yeah. of like yeah anyway that kind of yeah i mean I, I again i feel like the difference there is it's not that like chat gpt can't necessarily do it. it's that like you don't want it to do you don't want to do it without passing through a human editor first most of the time you're going to have to make changes to that in order to make it cogent um uh uh the regional chats is something there was some huge drama about people making and selling books including edible mushroom guides which had like dangerously incorrect info that's fair but like that's also not a problem unique to AI, right? Like that's yeah. like, you know, maybe people. I, I don't think people trust AI that much. Um, there's some stories of lawyers getting in trouble with it, but like that's that's like the exception, not the rule. Oh my god, I saw those. Yeah, there's the, it's been the several lawyers. times. Like I think I think the most prominent was like Michael Cohen, um, like cited an AI case that wasn't real. That was like hallucinated. Um, uh, but like you know, I remember when we were in, uh, when we were in college, like the JHU Blue Jay did, like, an article about, like, light BDSM stuff that, like, a bunch of the people that I knew that were, like, people in the ACM that were, like, into it were, like, this is wrong and it's dangerous, right? And it shouldn't be in the paper, right? Like, but, and, like, you know, it wasn't a thing then. That was just, like, idiots talking about something that they didn't know about, which is kind of a fair description of a lot of AI stuff right now, right? Like, especially stuff that, like, requires yeah. extremely fine detail technical stuff. Yeah, and, and to be clear, there's no evidence that Pal World does use AI. It's the, the, this is the thing that I don't understand. Yeah. The kind of order of operations is that Pal World worked on an AI game before Pal, the Pal World company worked on an AI game before Pal World, and the CEO has said kind things about using AI in games, and um, people are sort of using that as that. That seems to be the evidence. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think people just want to be mad at Pal World for like being successful while obviously having like kind of like knockoff elements. Um, yeah. Okay. I think that's it. Is maybe the most derivative game I've seen in a long time. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, like straight motivated reasoning. I think. I, or I think a lot of the hate is straight motivated reasoning. Um, friend of the cast, Monik, has been playing it. And he says it's like the actual underlying base building stuff is pretty good. Um, and it's actually like a pretty clean game, right? Like it's in early access, but it doesn't have a ton of ton of ton of bugs. Um, so, you know, yeah, I don't know. I haven't played it yet, so I don't really have a strong opinion on it. Fair enough. Um, uh, yeah, I've been playing so much Satisfactory, and wow, all I've been doing is just ping ponging between Satisfactory and WoW. Satisfactory, I like love it, and I also hate it. Um, there's a part of me that has been thinking through. There's this thing that I've that I've been doing recently in Satisfactory that is just the most fun thing. Okay, which is, I realize I need more of a component part. Say I need more screws, and I go, okay, you know what? I will siphon 120 iron and I'm going to make every screw I possibly can out of that. And I go, you go through the, all of the, the numbers, right? Oh, a constructor can make 30 AI or I'm sorry, uh, 30 iron, um, 
can make 30 iron ingots out of 30 iron ore per minute, right? And you can make 15 iron rods out of 15 ingots per minute. And so you just build this whole network of thing and you connect all of the conveyor belts and you make sure that the conveyor belts are the right type of conveyor belt that they can like perfectly slide the stuff into the thing at the right moment to make for the, you know, like the, the appropriate, I, I guess like rate or whatever. And then all at once, you connect the line which puts in iron ore and you just sit there and you just watch as your factory turns that iron ore into screws and the screws ship off into somewhere other other piece of the factory there is this level of bliss that comes from that that is so goddamn satisfying it is so hard to describe a level how satisfying of it is. satisfaction with your satisfactory yeah, a level of a level of satisfaction with my satisfactory. Um, that it makes me kind of want to say satisfactory. I think is a better game than Factorio, which is crazy. I have all I've long thought that Factorio is kind of like the the end all be all of um, of these automation games. And my early impression of Satisfactory was that it was too basic to be good um, because the the recipes in Factorio get pretty advanced pretty quickly. Uh, but the recipes in fact or in I'm sorry, the recipes in Factorio get pretty advanced pretty quickly. The recipes in Satisfactory take a much longer time to become advanced. Um, but the third dimension, just having a Z-axis to go up and down, just like really changes the, the sort of dynamics of the whole thing. Um, and also, there's one piece that's really interesting, which is a permanent rate that you can see at all times of how quickly does this thing do this thing, right? You know, when I go to the constructor, it says, okay, it turns 75 concrete or uh, 75 limestone into uh, 15 concrete per minute, right? And it's just like b dealing with the rates is so interesting and fun and complex. Um, and I just, I don't know, that, that stuff is, listen, I'm having a great time, I guess is, is all I'm really saying. Um, it's obviously not completed yet, um, and I am in a position where I don't know if I actually want to complete the build that we have. We're, we're basically the 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 stuff about um, the stuff about satisfactory that's interesting is you're putting stuff in like a space elevator and shooting it up into space, right? You're just like making these component parts, shooting them into space, kind of thing. Um, there's no tension. Like there is with Factorio, because in Factorio you can lose, you can die, right? You know, the bugs can overwhelm your base. You have to prepare your defenses. You make walls all around, all this other sort of stuff. In Satisfactory, there are guys to fight, but only when you're going out and exploring, right? When you're going to look for like a new node of iron to tap or whatever, right? Um, but like one of the things that defines uh, like Factorio is that... Um, you get trains pretty early, and you want to connect your bases with these train networks, right? Um, that are just, like, kind of constantly reading up and down sort of, like, how much you need in, how much you need out, and all this sort of, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and the animal animals will attack conveyor belts, but they won't attack train, train lines, right? So you have the train go, and you can have these different bases, and the different bases are, you know, like, whatever they are or whatever. Um... Because Satisfactory doesn't have that level of threat, you can just run conveyor belts from Timbuktu to your fucking base. And sure, it takes forever, right? Obviously, for stuff to, like, get there. But there's, like, no reason not to. So it's kind of this, like, water finds a cracked optimization that, I don't know, like, it just removes some of the tension, which I, I guess I find a little un-fun. Um, 
I don't know. Anyway, yeah, there we go. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of words about satisfactory. That makes sense. Um, how do, I, I? I've never really. I guess I've never really gotten your take about um, automation like games like Factorio and all that stuff. Um, I enjoyed my time with Factorio. I spent a couple of nights like sink really sinking into it. I never finished it, and I have Satisfactory. Never, never got into it. Um, as uh, you know, I am working on a light automation game right now, and so I have no desire to play one right Listen, now. What if I told you I was playing that game <laughs> earlier today? <laughs> yeah, but like you know, staring at code about how things move on belts makes me never want to like look, or makes me not want to look at one. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty funny. Uh, like anytime soon. So like, you know, it, it's, it is out of my, my kind of like a desire to play for a while. Plus I just have like a stack of games that I want to play, right? Like I want to play Cyberpunk. Um, I eventually want to get back around to Death Stranding and finish that game before Death Stranding 2 comes out. Like all that. I stuff. also have a, a thing. I've, I've actually been going back into my library. I was like, what are some games that I like want to go back to? Um, one of them was Humankind. Do you remember Humankind? Yes. Yes, the, I do. Like the, the Civ. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I started a game of Humankind and I like really ground out a couple of like hours of it where I wasn't having a good time, but I just really wanted to play it. Right. Um, and I, I don't know what I mean. I think I might just like restart. I think I just like had a bad start. Um, the thing that's complicated about humankind, I feel like I'm coming back to Stellaris, but I haven't played since 1.0. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So many of the systems are wildly different than I left them basically. Um, and I feel simultaneously. And it just, honestly, the thing it makes me feel is stupid which sucks, right? It makes me feel like I'm a like I'm an idiot basically. Um because I wasn't reading like the patch notes to get from sort of like here to there. So the frame that I remember and the game that I'm playing are just like completely different things and I like uh, it just makes me feel out of my depth and it makes me feel like all my decisions are dumb ones. Which is interesting because when the original Humankind dropped and I said I liked it okay, right? Like it's not great. I, I, I sort of don't love any of these games. Um, there is a Paradox one coming out later, uh, Millennia. Right. Um, which is like their version of Civ at this point basically. Um, I feel like I have moved past this framework of games in, in a lot of ways. I've talked about that a million times before. Um, but maybe the answer is I've just moved past humankind. I, I can never really like go back to it in the way that in the way that I want to. But who knows? I'm yeah. stubborn. Yeah. Right. No, I that I feel that. I have also been playing Grime of all things because we launched the definitive edition of Grime last week, on, uh, on which is a new Switch, piece right? of DLC. Yeah, and the game finally came to um, the game finally came to Switch. Uh, it is, it, you know, it feels good to like complete a game like that. Um, and I kind of didn't realize that. I guess I'm really good at Grime now. Uh, I actually cleared through the first. It took me like four Akupara streams, which is like four to eight hours, to get to the end of Whispering Mothers, uh, which is the second boss in the game. Uh, and I did that in one night. I did that like in one sitting. I think I did that in. I want to say like 45 minutes. Uh, I wiped on Whispering Mothers once, but that but that was it before I started moving on. Uh, and I think now I'm in like nerve root. Um, I am doing the the forever doomed strength build, um, but it's working out pretty pretty good. I like my the Obsidian Fists quite a lot, uh, and so I'm using the Obsidian Fist and the Carven Great Sword to um, I don't know to fuck around and do stuff. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I find that that's, like, a thing that typically happens with a lot of Souls-likes is, like, once you know where things are, like, going through it a second time happens a little bit more rapidly. 
quite a bit more rapidly. Even. Yeah, there are some stuff. There's some stuff that surprised me. Uh, there have been a couple of routes that have opened up that weren't in the base version of the game, which was really the last version of the game that I like played. I played a little bit of Tinge of Terror, which is the new game plus that got added, um, which was honestly pretty fun. Uh, I beat the second boss in Tinge of Terror. Um, or Whispering Mothers, actually. I beat Whispering Mothers in Tinge of Terror, which was actually very hard because the, the Tinge of Terror thing is um, every enemy, not just bosses, every enemy in the game has new mechanics, right? Um, that they do new different stuff and you have to account for that. Um, and so that's pretty interesting. Uh, the, the next thing that's on my list is Iron Harvest. Uh, this is a game that's been on my wish list for a long time. It's kind of World War... It's it's sort of World is this like War the steampunk RTS. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, I have. It's been on my it's been on my wish list for just like the longest fucking time, um, and uh, I decided to finally pull the trigger and do it. So you know we're 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 gonna we're gonna be Iron Harvest gamers, I guess. Yeah, you have to tell me how it is. I played it at PAX a couple of years ago, and it was not my favorite. But I also just like kind of don't like RTS games most of the time. Um, the thing that really caught me um, is that it is a little bit like uh, Total War, uh, which I didn't know at the time, but I, you know, like learned eventually, which is that you are playing the, the map, apparently. I don't know. I, I was just sort of like looking at this stuff. You're playing the overall big map and you're taking territory like like thing by thing and you are either the assaulting faction or like the defending faction against that stuff and i think that setup is pretty cool and interesting uh and i don't know i just think uh you know i don't know there's this thing about like world war one with mechs that has become a thing recently and i want to do it i don't know i want to experience it so that's i guess that's where we're at sure sure all right you have anything else you want to talk about or should we wrap this up yeah, you know, listen, we can we can wrap it up, I guess. All right. Well, if you'd like to email us about any of the things we talked about in this podcast, you can email us at subdurbsclaims at gmail.com or podcast at subdurbsclaims.com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash subdurbsclaims, youtube.com slash at subdurbsclaims, where uh, these go out live. Uh, rate and review us on uh, anywhere you find podcasts. Everything's in the description. Uh, that's every, everything I had. But do you have anything you're looking to promote? Uh, you know, listen, Grime is out on the Nintendo fucking Switch. That's huge, uh, but I otherwise have nothing I'm looking to promote. All right. Well, in that case, I'm going to say until next time to your listeners. Until le less uh, blah, 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 blah. until next time, loyal listeners. <laughs>